Ordinarily, we talk about the threshold as a point of entry, which can be a cell made of strip or uh, made of wood or metal that forms the bottom of the doorway used for entering a building. But in Old English, threshold had a much more nuanced meaning to thresh could mean to separate the husks um, from the grain by rubbing, shaking, trampling or stamping, or it could also mean to beat by way of punishment uh, with a whip or with a stick. As, as a noun, threshold was used to refer to a stumbling block sometimes. But in later days, especially now, scientists often talk about threshold as a magnitude or intensity that has to be exceeded for a certain condition, phenomenon, or reaction to occur, or um, when certain toxicological or physiological effects begin to um, change the substance. University of Cambridge and the Center for Governance and Human Rights. I'm Nisha Bastani. I'm Jean Darby Minton. And I'm Max Curtis. And this is Declarations. physical, tall, powerful, beautiful. This is how then-candidate Trump described his most talked-about campaign promise, the wall. So psychologically imposing that it doesn't even need a name, it's just a great big the. Almost four years after his infamous campaign slogan began, the wall, half real, half fiction, remains at the heart of American politics, both in Washington and the U.S.-Mexico border, where debates over financial costs clash with the cost of human life as migrants and refugees face what's increasingly not only a physical border, but also a symbolic one. We have with us today Dr. Yeva Yusionte. She's an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Harvard and editor of the University of California Press series in public anthropology. Her most recent book, Threshold, Emergency Responders on the U.S.-Mexico Border, is written from the perspective of firefighters and paramedics working along the border between Sonora and Arizona. Her research has also been featured in the BBC, NPR, and The Atlantic. Thank you for being with us today. It's a pleasure. As an anthropologist, your research explores the U.S.-Mexico border, not just as a space for abstract political debates, but as a lived, everyday place with a sort of reality or fluidity, um, which is different than the rhetorical existence of the wall. Can you tell us about what the value is of this method? And when you lived there, what did you find? So this is probably the major contribution of anthropologists to focus on lived experience and lived realities as opposed to what uh, what we hear unfortunately from the media which not always presents an accurate picture and for people who don't live near the border or have never crossed the border it's very easy to think of it as a very scary place as a source of threats um, and a lot of what politicians tend to say sounds credible 
especially when the country is dealing uh, with uh, opioid addiction epidemics and narcotics coming into the country is a big issue. Um, also, crime is always a big selling point for politicians. It's very easy to uh, project it onto the border. And as an anthropologist, you try to understand all the phenomena from the bottom up, from the perspective of people for whom it is a lived reality. So it brought me to the border, to this particular border, because I had studied another one before. I worked on Argentina-Brazil-Paraguay border, and specifically on uh, how local journalists decide when to write about crime, such as trafficking, and when not to. Uh, how not to create this vision or portrait of a border area that's scary. Um, so in, in, in this case, I also wanted to see what a security or insecurity mean for people who call borderlands their home and whose communities the border cleaves in two parts or who don't necessarily see these as two communities, but just one family, one political community, one urban or rural um, space. So how, how, does, how is their life altered by constructions of different types of barriers and by um, escalating rhetoric of border threats and, and really how it impacts their daily lives? So what you're saying is sort of like your previous field work, the portrayal of the U.S.-Mexico border as this sort of divided space of lawlessness and danger. That's not just like a stereotype. It's also a deliberate choice in a lot of ways. It's it's a selling of political strategy, not only in the United States, but uh, also in, in other countries. It's proved true, um, effective for getting votes for politicians. So, yes. And so this militarization of borders that we're talking about a lot now because of Trump um, obviously has a longer history than that. And most of your field work for your book was actually done, I believe, before Trump's election. Um, so could you tell us a bit more about the history of this? That's right. It seems that everyone is talking or looking at the border now, but there are these, I would say, waves of attention. U.S. border policy has never been very humanistic, starting from the 19th century and the, the first harsher uh, immigration policies such as Chinese Exclusion Act, and then the first fences started coming off at the beginning of the 20th century. But it really took off in the 1990s. Uh, interestingly, at the same time, roughly the same time when the North American Free Trade Agreement came into effect. Uh, it was under Clinton administration when the government um, decided they need to show um, American people that something is being done at the border. And that's when the famous Border Patrol Plan of 1994 came into effect, which uh, increased the fencing, but also other resources, manpower, technology, ground sensors in the major urban corridors. The same, can, the same policies, they, they were never repealed or never uh, rolled back. They, there was just movement forward. So under 
President Bush's administration, which coincided with um, September 11th. There were many policies that came into effect uh, to increase national security in the name of national security, and the border was prioritized as one of those vulnerabilities where potential terrorists could come into the country. So there were more resources, new types of fencing, much more um, manpower. And then the same, the same continued under Obama, nothing, um, nothing really new. There were talks of different technological solutions of virtual fencing, more surveillance towers, um, more upgraded fences. And basically, that's where we are now uh, with, with a Trump administration. these borders as places and spaces, but there's also the border and the wall as a material reality. And your research and your actual work with EMTs at the border gets into that sort of bodily experience. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Sometimes we just think the border is very susceptible to being talked in various ways. It's very symbolic, right? It can be metaphorical. Uh, but it is really also material, and that material has changed from barbed wire fencing to this type of fences made from landing mats that had very sharp edges. They were not very tall, only 8 to 12 feet tall, but people who would scale those fences sometimes got their fingers amputated, for example. That's what EMTs and paramedics dealt with. Uh, now, in a lot of areas, you have what's known as bollard-style barriers. They have gaps between uh, these beams of metal, about four-inch gaps, so you can see across. The, but it's much taller, so people who fall from this type of barrier usually um, have multi-system trauma. They not only break their legs, but also injure their spine and the head, uh, and it, it in some areas, you have these jagged rocks that are near the fence, so the injuries are even more dramatic. And the when you read policy documents, it's not as if in the discussion of what type of material to use, they uh, consider what kind of trauma it can cause. Some Some of the qualities that matter when selecting materials is the cost or the aesthetic qualities for the communities for because people both in the U.S. and Mexico live near this um, barrier uh, and their effectiveness at preventing breaching, usually allegedly by um, drug traffickers. But it's not it's not included in their calculations of what what types of trauma it would cause or in addition to human beings, it also damages a lot of natural environment. For, for example, certain animal species cannot uh, cross anymore. There is exacerbation of different natural phenomena, such as floods, uh, when, when the water gets stuck on one side of the border than on another. So it is, it is, a, it is the border is legal, the border is metaphorical, but it's also 
tactile and and material and working with emergency responders who approach both injured human bodies um, as well as any potential dangers to to uh, structures to build structures to the environment uh, made me pay more attention to to, to the materiality of, of the barrier. I think especially under Trump, there's been a lot less attention to the specific the specific materiality of the border. Like people joke about whether it's a fence or a wall or whether it's made of brick or whether it's, you know, made of like iron fencing or whatever. In a way that to them, you know, in the sort of like abstract political debates that go on, it doesn't necessarily matter to people. Like, is it this kind of wall or that kind of wall? But then whatever kind of wall gets built up, people do actually have to live with that every day. Right. Um, and not many people, though, because mm. the border communities are... So some of the border cities are larger, like uh, El Paso is maybe 10 times larger than Nogales, Arizona, where I did m most of my work. But compared to, again, most people who support hardening of the border or uh, building up security on the border the the voice of the communities is um, diminished and it doesn't doesn't play such a hard such such, such a big role um, the other thing is that border building is a big business so when when we're talking about virtual fences there are uh, Boeing had contract to build different um, sensors and different surveillance uh, technologies earlier. Now there is a company that's originally, I think, uh, worked on uh, on the walls in uh, Palestine and Israel, and now is uh, is working on the U.S.-Mexico border, building some surveillance towers. When President Trump announced the bid for constructing his wall, the shares in cement companies. Uh, went up because they thought, okay, if it will be a wall built of cement, then there will be the need to buy a lot of cement. Um, so those conversations are happening, but much more in the back, on the backstage. There's this question of what you described as security aesthetics and what a wall should look like. Walls are doing two things. They're keeping people out, but they're also a representation of the power of the state in a way that... Um, aesthetic choices can become quite important, actually, because what the wall looks like to the people on both sides of it sort of says something about the nature of the state on the other side. How does that play out, and what role does that play over time? Are the demands for the aesthetics different now than they were in the 90s? In the 90s, when this um, metal uh, landing mat wall went up, I think a lot of communities were unprepared for how ugly they would find it because when it rusted, it resembles the color of an old bruise. It's brown and a little greenish. Uh, and people couldn't see what's going on on the other side. They couldn't uh, hear their neighbors in Mexico. So when it changed in 2011, when you have these gaps in the wall, it, it, it becomes almost a space where people gather. So some of the families that are separated and perhaps some can't can't go into the United States and live in Mexico or people who have been deported, they meet with their children or other family members at the border fence on the weekends and they at least talk through the gaps in the fence. And that has been tolerated by the Border Patrol for many years. 
it's become less tolerated since last year or two years ago when the Border Patrol, at least in Nogales, started putting up additional mesh uh, mesh fences to to discourage people from holding hands or, or doing other things across the border. It's But it's also interesting that all the um, aesthetic improvements or subversions to the wall is happening on the Mexican side. So if you, the, the wall is on the U.S. soil, it's a United States federal property. They could not build it either at the jurisdictional line or in Mexico. It's in the United States, therefore the United States decides how it looks like, it builds it, Mexico has no say. But on the Mexican side, there have been a lot of artists who, um, uh, there was one Tijuana-based artist, Ana Teresa Fernandez, for example, she has a project called Borrando la Frontera, or Erasing the Border. Mm -hmm. She has been painting sections of the wall sky blue, so it merges with the sky and disappears. It's not this ugly brown color as it is now. Uh, in other places, people have, have where uh, we're putting different art, art installations, and in some in some situations, these are um, made international. But in the U.S. side, it's quickly disassembled because it's not allowed. But on the Mexican side, all these artworks remain, and they they show that the human. Um, humanity can transcend barriers and this makes me think that this year later in the fall we'll be marking the 30 year anniversary since the fall of the Berlin Wall um, which was also a place it, it was a, a wall that separated people but it also attracted a lot of artists and all the art was on on the uh, West Germany part. Uh, and you can still go and see all those murals. Some of them were maintained, whereas in the US-Mexico border, the art is on the Mexican side. The border is built by the United States. The Berlin Wall was built by the Soviet, the Soviet side, the German uh, Democratic Republic. So who, you know, who, which side is building walls and which side is trying to supersede them? Um, it's a, it's a very interesting parallel. And I guess that's true for the Israeli West Bank barrier as well, in terms of there being a lot of graffiti and protest art and it becoming symbolic in that way. And again, in, on which side, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing you spoke about um, in the talk you had here today um, was using, or how we can think about the wall as a weapon or a tactic and you spoke about this in terms of the politics of like what is an accident and people who get injured trying to cross the border are treated by um, emergency responders as having experienced some kind of accident could you say a bit more about that in the united states the emergency medical services developed in the 1960s with the introduction of well, what is known as the white paper, but the the, poli the policy or the document was officially titled Accidental Death and Disability uh, in the American Society. So when I was um, when I was learning to be an EMT and paramedic, and I read that, I thought, okay, well, a lot of calls we get as emergency responders are for accidents, but some of the accidents are not really unexpected, unintentional occurrences. Some of them 
are quite predictable. And when you see what is happening with the injuries on the U.S.-Mexico border, a lot of those um, injuries, although they were not written as in the policy documents that we, uh, the Border Patrol, expect people to have multi-system trauma if we install this type of barrier, it, it should have been in, in the minds of anyone who, at least the engineers who were designing it. Um, in the Border Patrol documents, the fences part of this larger assemblage of infrastructure and technology materials and, and uh, technologies that are called tactical infrastructure. And uh, they, they don't really define how, what they think about tactical because we can on the one hand we can think it's something smaller that you do to achieve a larger purpose which could be the national security so we build the fence and therefore uh, we increase national security but tactical is much more often perhaps used in the context of war or talking about war where you um, deploy uh, tactical infrastructure to achieve certain uh, certain goals and looking at what the U.S. policy has been towards the border, both in practice but also in rhetoric, it, it's not far-fetched. The um, discourse of war on crime, war on drugs, in the aftermath of 9-11, war on terror, all of those had very concrete implications for border policies for different materiality of fencing and now what we are seeing in this larger this latest um iteration of um hardening border policies is part of the war on migration or war on immigration um so in that in that sense these these injuries are tactical too they are not accidental does that relate maybe to the broader tactic of shifting sort of over the decades between like the war on drugs to the war on terror to the war on migration and uh, refugees like do you see those as sort of like related sort of like rhetorical and material tactics in a way they are and it's not that one is not replacing another we just add another one one the older one doesn't seem to elicit enough support um, the war on crime still continues the same as the war on drugs, although you other other agencies of the same status are looking for different ways to talk about the problems of saying that the drug problem is not a problem of crime, but it's a public health issue. When the gaze turns to the border, all that is forgotten. It seems this is the... This is the ground zero for protecting the United States from everything that's unwanted without trying to acknowledge that the root causes of a lot of these phenomena are within the United States. You can't, you can't fence out addiction um, or labor shortages or U.S., the legacies of U.S. intervention in Mexico or Central America, some of the reasons why people migrate and why there is drugs coming across the border. Um, it's a very, um, 
false or um, perhaps like scape scapegoating type of solution to very real existing problems in in the current in current society in the United States. Declarations is brought to you by, well, you, the audience. So if you like what you're hearing, or if you have any comments or suggestions, rate and review us on that app you're using right now. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, back to the show. One of the things you also talked about in the talk earlier was um, the sort of shifting patterns of who is migrating. So the migration crisis or sort of migration in general, we often think of it as a consistent thing, but actually there are different patterns for populations who move for different reasons at different times. Um, How does that figure into what's happening at the border now um, with a lot of people there to seek asylum? Mm, So for many years, and this really started (laughs) maybe too far too far for us to go back but when uh during the second world war when the japanese were interned or placed in internment camps in the united states the that labor shortage that was created was filled by mexican laborers who came for the bracero program Uh, this is just part of this longer story but for many decades people who have been migrating both legally and illegally uh, were um workers were men even in the 19 well when i started this research project in 2014 or 15 still a lot of people i encountered were men coming for work some from mexico some from central america there were women too um, as well as elderly people some of them deported from the united states uh, trying to go go back to be with the families that um, where they lived for the past 20, 30 years. But what's happening now or what started a couple of years ago is this shift from migrants who are coming to work to people who are fleeing their countries because they are uh, afraid for their lives or their children's lives, and because the the instability of certain of of particular governments, like after the coup in Honduras, uh, so a lot of people are are more more desperate, um, and they they go with families. They bring their children. Nobody in their you know, right mind if they live somewhere where life is okay would think to bring their children across the desert where they can die. Um, it means that there are real, real, really important reasons why why these people have to leave their countries. And then once they reach the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, many of them are now traveling in larger groups rather than paying uh, human smugglers exorbitant amounts of money. They travel together for safety and uh, for certain logistical uh, reasons. But once they reach the U.S.-Mexico border, they try to present themselves at the ports of entry or outside the ports of entry to the Border Patrol agents to ask for asylum. So they they are asylum seekers, um, 
and they have a right to ask for asylum. Their cases will be pending probably until they are processed for a long time. Sometimes it's a few years because of how many uh, are and how uh, immigration courts, how overwhelmed they are. Uh, but so it's a very different um, different situation. And when we are looking back at the history of the Border Patrol or at the way the agency works now, it is not prepared or not equipped to deal with, with refugees or with asylum seekers. They think or they are taught to think that anyone who is coming into the country is a potential threat and they are a law enforcement agency. They are not um, medical aid uh, institution. They're not social workers. They're not lawyers. They don't know how to deal with vulnerable populations. And that shows by, we see children and adolescents dying in their custody, um, as well as other people. The, the data is really very sketchy because they don't like releasing these numbers. But that's partly because the agency is having difficulty adjusting to this new type of people who are presenting themselves at the border. They were not created for that. And even though they are hiring now more EMTs among their own ranks, and they have new policies where they try to take children to the doctors if they present with fever or other complaints, it's still the law enforcement agency that they are, militarized law enforcement agency with a, with a, uh, with a mandate and with a mentality that the border is under threat, is not, um, is not equipped to, to respond to this situation. On the one hand, there's these, the border patrol agencies that, as you say, don't treat people so much as vulnerable populations as a threat. And on the other hand, there's the emergency responders who, by virtue of their job, do see victims and vulnerable populations. How do those two relate together um, since they're not totally disconnected and they're part of, um, well, the same two states or same state? Emergency responders, it, it varies by state, but at least in, in Arizona, they're not even allowed to ask the patient's legal status. They, they treat anyone regardless. Um, they take them to the hospital. F for them, an injured person is someone who needs immediate attention. Otherwise, they might lose a limb or they might lose life. Uh, but at the same time, now they have been much more in contact with the Border Patrol, which is a federal agency and which is a law enforcement agency. Uh, and you see this blending or blurring between life-saving care and immigration enforcement. In some uh, jurisdictions that I worked, um, the the only com the only way for the emergency medical services to get compensated for the care they provide to injured migrants is through the border patrol or if they report the patient to the border patrol the border patrol takes them into custody officially accompanies the ambulance to the hospital 
the patient is then placed in this lockdown unit and after their injuries are attended to, they are taken to a detention center and then eventually deported. So there is this blending that's occurring. A lot, there is a lot of resistance to that. Some emergency responders avoid reporting it to the Border Patrol because there's no policy that requires you to do that. It's more a matter of resources in some communities and in others, it is a the disposition of the chief of the agency of the fire department of whether they agree um, with the government policies that migrants are a potential threat and they break the law and therefore they must be uh, reported to the border patrol or not. Um, But it's very problematic. Emergency responders, nurses, doctors, um, recently an organization known as Physicians for Human Rights issued a report um, of what's about these practices of how the Border Patrol is uh, entering the hospitals and other safe spaces that they shouldn't, uh, and that we should maintain the separation, even even in war zones, Red Cross have has, or uh, Doctors Without Borders has have some uh, autonomy that they should, they are not, they are impartial and they should provide treatment to um, people regardless of their nationality, legal status or criminal background. Um, But it's really, it's a gray, it's a very gray area where everyone interprets the situation as, as they wish. And there are also other situations where the Border Patrol are almost automatically included so when the rescues happen in very remote areas that can only be accessed with uh, Black Hawk helicopters that only the Border Patrol have or sometimes when they have to rescue people from the tunnels that go under the border um, for safety reasons sometimes emergency responders go there with a, a with border patrol agents who have uh, guns and they accompany them. So in some in some situations they're involved because of certain logistical or security reasons. Um, but in others, it's it, it's not it's this this blending is legally problematic. The uh, American Civil Liberties Union has filed. Um, I'm not sure. I think it's a lawsuit. Because when migrants who are traveling through the desert try to contact 911 if they are, uh, if they get injured or they see someone else injured or sick, sometimes their calls don't even get transferred immediately to 911 services, to local ambulances or local police, local jurisdictions, but are redirected to the Border Patrol. And that is... That is a violation um, of, of, of civil rights. Um, so so this, this blending is certainly problematic because it makes the provision of life-saving care uh, contingent on being placed into Border Patrol custody um, and makes border enforcement more um, important than medical care. And I guess another thing that comes to mind when thinking about rights is, or 
human rights violations at borders um, is in the case of injuries caused by the wall or by a piece of infrastructure. Um, this like removal of an agent um, and who like who is committing the rights violation um, becomes so obscure, especially, I mean, like we say the state broadly, um, but then also in the case of like private groups trying to fund their own walls um, and a wall is hard to pinpoint as, yeah, a violation of not like, property rights or something <laughs> like that, um, but actual like human life. Right, if you eat a hamburger and get sick, you can sue maybe the company that served you at the restaurant or the chef that made it or somebody who produced the meat, but who who is responsible for, for these injuries? Is it the federal government that mandates uh, the creation of the wall? Is it the Congress that approves or doesn't approve the budget? Is it the private uh, contractors that build it? Um, is it, it, so far, it seems that because the migrants are being criminalized uh, for the very act of trying to scale the border, they are essentially, they, they assume responsibility. And this, this has been quite um, depressing to me because when, when the book came out and I also uh, spoke to the media and I wrote some more public-oriented pieces and engaged um, those, the, these ideas uh, made a lot of readers respond and I read it I read those comments I knew it's probably not not a very good idea but um, a lot people either agree or disagree and the people in the camp that agrees with existing policies were saying that well of course they are breaking the law so they deserve the injuries uh, maybe we should even make the border wall more dangerous put a moat of alligators there or shoot people who try to cross. So these were really terrifying to read. Um, and then when, uh, when the book was reviewed in one uh, journal that specifically dedicated to issues in emergency medical services, so it was reviewed by a paramedic, he compared this to the situation of uh, very sharp curves on the roads. So we could, we could say that let's build roads with very sharp curves so people who speed, that's a violation of the law, speeding, right? They would crash. They would get off the road and crash. Do, do we really want to build the roads that punish people who violate the law with a death or serious injury? So I think this this comparison uh, is quite apt one because if somebody, of course, we should peel back this question. The, the laws are not are not e equal to justice, and the existing laws, uh, both in 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 immigration laws and uh, in the United States, definitely need revision. Uh, but even if we remain within the existing um, box of the laws, it's still violating um, something like 
crossing the border without authorization is not punishable by a lifelong injury or by death. I mean, it's really hard when you start thinking about these questions because no matter like the infrastructure of the border, obviously borders raise a lot of questions about human rights and are often like a place where they get suspended um, in some way. Um, and it's very, or it's sort of a straw man argument, but I guess people will often say, well, you can't not have borders, right? Um, or we find it very hard to imagine a world without borders. And I wonder, and sometimes, I mean, the imagination seems to go the other way, right? Of like how to make it worse. Um, but have you found in the communities or just in general, like many instances or any instances of people imagining in the other way of like, what would a better alternative look like? I think the aesthetic thing of painting the wall on one side sort of speaks to that of wanting to get out of this framework that we're stuck in. Um, there have been a lot of um, subversive projects from architects when the bid to design President Trump's wall came out. Some of the architects proposed um, building a library wall where Mexicans and Americans could come together and the wall would be books and you can select books from both sides. There were ideas for... Um, well, so some of them are very fun, like teeter-totter wall where you can uh, hang a teeter-totter and play around or play baseball across the wall. And there have been games, by the way, um, different or movie projections that happen simultaneously on both sides or concerts. Those, those happen in local communities um, in terms of the seriously considering alternatives there are not that many but i it, it's not that the opposite to this hardened barrier that we have now or that the president wants is complete and open borders um different jurisdictions people who live in different jurisdictions whether it's countries or counties or states have a right to decide on different laws for example whether the drinking age is 18 or 21 or whether you can vote at this age or that um, so it's okay to have these jurisdictional boundaries and sometimes maybe you can mark them with obelisk or with something uh, there are borders or boundaries between Massachusetts and uh, Vermont or between United States and Canada or between um, Belgium and the Netherlands. But those borders are not um, so physically imposing um, and they're not made to hurt people because that, that, that part really doesn't work as much as it scares so I don't, I don't really know. That's one thing of being about being an anthropologist. We, we get at the root of the problem. We criticize it from various viewpoints, especially the local perspectives. But we are not necessarily the best <laughs> policymakers in terms of making um, finding solutions because. Every solution can be criticized for what it is or what it will be. Um, 
And being a public anthropologist or thinking that anthropology should be speaking to the public, I think that the main role is to introduce an argument, present a problem and see whether there are people better equipped to find the solutions. And I have lived through coming down of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> so I hope one day to see the U.S.-Mexico wall come down to. Part of the difficulty here is in pinning down sort of the wall. It, the issue is that it's on the one hand this very like hegemonic imposing physical um, thing and on the other hand it's sort of weirdly permeable and ephemeral in some ways and like sort of constantly incomplete like I don't think that even if Trump got another four years that it would necessarily be fully complete there's always the sort of you know it needs the promise of there always being a more secure border sometime in the future sort of this failure of the wall is also part of the point of it. So like, for instance, I have this quote from a um, science fiction author called China Mieville, and he writes about walls at one point, saying, um, keeping monsters out isn't all that walls do. Walls fail, they collapse. Ever since the trumpets at Jericho, at least, the, the telos of a wall is to be breached, to keep apocalypse out and to let it in. There's this weird sort of pleasure that some people seem to have at seeing the wall fail, you know, seeing like migrants pour through and there's this sort of weird way, especially I think in conservative media America, there's this like deliciousness to the failure of it. That's so well said. Yes, um, a good wall or an effective wall is the one that is permeable, that's incomplete. At the in the aftermath uh, afterward to my book, I uh, quote from Franz Kafka, who I th I think it's called the Great Wall or the Great Wall of China. Um, he has um, a piece by that name, where the whole idea is that the the Great Wall of China was never complete and it could not be complete. So people who were, were building it in sections, and once they completed a section, they were taken to build another section to give this um, illusion that something is being done, something is being completed. But even the workers themselves who were building these sections, they could not they could not bear being there forever, seeing how impossible their task is because the wall will never be built. So they had to do it in smaller chunks to at least see the end of their work and to believe believe it. And this, even on the U.S.-Mexico border, it's interesting when, um, when politicians come to visit it, they always go to a chunk that's already either completed or a gap, it, it becomes part of the spectacle to, to show um, either the infrastructure of protection and how it works or its failures. And you can use both. And the, now we have fences that cover about one third of the U.S.-Mexico border, um, over 650 miles. And at first, the president was saying that we, we need a wall that would extend through the entire 2,000 miles, but it's 
impossible because of the rugged terrain, because of the river. Um, so now it's it seems to be okay as long as sections of it will be built, which is again really uh, re- revealing because it it means that the illicit traffic that the government doesn't want will simply be redirected up or down. Uh, but I I completely agree the the walls will never they they can't be finished because that will lose its political effectiveness. Thanks again for joining us. It's been really fantastic, and I think we all learned a huge amount about this. Thank you so much for having this conversation. Thanks to you for listening as well. You can follow us on Twitter at DeclarationsPod, like us on Facebook, or get in touch via email at declarationspod at gmail.com. Tune in next time to Declarations. <laughs>